Today's reading is Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 to 31. It can be found on page 65 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. The word of the Lord. I invite you to join me in prayer. Our God of grace, we come into this uh, space together, looking into this story together, 
and we come from different kinds of places, different kinds of spiritual places, different kinds of economic places, different kind of uh, psychological places this week, and experiential places. But our prayer is that you meet us. Because whether we come with great faith or doubt, joy or sorrow and suffering, the truth is that uh, we're all in the same boat. Each and every one of us needs your grace every second because we are more of a mess than we care to admit. In this story, this grand story from Scripture, invites us to believe that you respond to our mess by entering into it and taking it on yourself through your son. Taking our place, the place of fragmentation, the place of rejection, the place of abuse, the place of punishment, so that we could take the place in your presence as your child, as your children. Would you help us through this message, through these words, through your Holy Spirit, to believe that that is true and help it to change us moving forward. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to ask you a question. Does anybody know, if I mentioned the name Bodhi, would anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, some people paying attention to Sacramento News. Anybody? Yeah? Police dog, Bodhi? Yeah, okay, some other people kind of joined in after I ex- gave a little explanation. So um, the rest of you should just feel terrible that you're not following the latest Sacramento Police Department canine unit news. But um, so this was, a, this was like a high-speed car chase that ended in uh, this canine named Bodie getting shot three times. This Friday he was released. Bodie's okay. And... Um, He's going to join the force back um, in probably about six months. But um, why I bring that up is because, um, so it wasn't this Friday, it was the Friday before, I was driving into the quiet little neighborhood by my kid's school to drive some kids to a field trip. And um, suddenly as I'm crossing the street, I look down and I find myself 100 feet away from this oncoming police chase through this quiet little neighborhood. I mean, I'm in the way of the bad guys, and I went with my better judgment, and I didn't stop to create the Mark Holland barricade and help the police out, right? Could have, been a, could have been a hero. Decided instead, out of sheer fear, just to move forward and go to the side, and then they, sure enough, turned the corner, and they all went right past me, and then went down the next street, and then two hours later, it all kind of ended, not so wonderfully for the driver of that car. Um, and I bring that up because the, the story of Egypt that we're in, at this point, the ancient Hebrew people are at this kind of place of absolutely being terrified because they're looking out and coming right at them are really the ancient version of fighter jets. In terms of armies, you know, 800 chariots, or I think it was 800, maybe 600. Anyway, these hundreds of chariots, those are the ultimate premium weapon of war, warfare in this age. And they're coming down, barreling down. They hear them before they see them. And they're coming down and they're trapped. The Red Sea's behind them. They have nowhere to go. They're terrified. What's absolutely clear to us in this kind of story is that they need salvation. It's clear to us. It makes sense to us to use that word, even though that's kind of like a, that word salvation is sort of like that old car, 
in the back acreage with weeds and rust kind of growing all around it, salvation. I think in our day-to-day lives, we don't really know. It's not clear for us how to apply that word, salvation. How do we use it? How do we think about it? What does it mean? What are we saved from? Who saves us? What are we saved to? How does that salvation work? And it's actually a word worth rescuing because it's central to the Christian faith. It's central to understanding the gospel of Jesus and what it means to be a part of that, what it means for that gospel of grace to be in your life and to flow out. So we're looking at salvation really through, there's no better story than through this epic great escape story. This story shows us three things. I'm actually going to cut one of them out. Um, So if you want the third one, here's a teaser. Go to one of the weekday pods, Tuesday or Wednesday, and the third question of the pod sheet this week will discuss the third thing that I'm not going to tell you about now, so it's a teaser. So come to a community pod on, on Tuesday or Wednesday. But the first two pictures that this story gives us about, I see many of you looking for the times and dates of the pods and where they located. You're going to go this week. So it gives us two pictures. Let's look at these two pictures of salvation. The first is a picture of our problem. The second is a picture of our deliverance. Picture of our problem. As we get into the story, what we didn't read, we didn't have time to you know, read all that's before leading up to this and after. Um, so what's happened is Pharaoh, after the ten plagues, he's finally let them out because it has been so awful, the destruction so huge. He's finally realized he has to relent, and he lets the people go as they've been asking. And as they go out into the, into the desert, as they make their way out of there, Pharaoh, not surprisingly, if you've paid attention, he changes his mind. And he kind of looks around with his officials and he says, what have we done? We've allowed our, really, our economic gold mine, right? It's like the, the gold egg-laying uh, goose or chicken or whatever. We've let them go. I mean, it's our free slave labor force. What have we done? This is ridiculous. Let's go get them. Let's enlist the chariots. Let's get them back. The Israelites, they're cornered. They look out the Red Sea behind them. They, you know, they're absolutely and rightfully terrified because it, the fact that the chariots are coming, this is not just a simple, okay, come on, kids, let's go back home. You know, we're going to lock you in your room for a while. This isn't just round them up nicely. This is an ultimatum. This is serve us or die. This is um, some people are going to lose blood over this one. They brought the chariots. But as scary as that is, Israel's actions, um, honestly, if you're paying attention, Israel's response, the, the people of Israel, their response to the situation is nothing other than delusional. It really is, and let me show you why. First of all, if you read verse 12, this is, they're, they're unraveling. They're not making any sense. They're saying things that make no sense. They're remembering the past completely wrong. They're saying things have happened that never did. This is what they say. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They, you look back, they never said that. <laughs> that interaction actually never happened. They're just remembering things out of their they're unraveling. They're delusional. One other way that you see it is if you think about what's happened and think about it through the eyes of any of, you, any of you, if you're a reasonable person, if you were there, what have they just seen? What has just happened? These 10 plagues, right? Somebody whispered, I think. The 10 plagues have just happened. These enormous, incredible acts of God that have, what have they done? They've, they've brought the, one of the most powerful 
nations in the region crippled to its knees so that this little people group, little unarmed slave people group, could eventually escape. I mean, what's the logical thing to say at that point? You know, hey, Moses, um, the Egyptians are coming. Could you please pray for an 11th plague? Right? That's logical. They've, after what they've seen, I mean, it's incredible, and we went through that last week. But they don't. Nobody thinks of that. Moses seems to be the only one who's thinking straight and trusting God. So how do we understand why they're unraveling and becoming delusional? I think one of the things we have to understand is that the place that, that the people of Israel are at with respect to who they serve. At this point, they're no longer serving Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But by their actions, you can see they've also, they're they also not given over to God being their master. They're in this middle ground. It seems like they're not serving anyone, but they're unraveling. They're falling apart. One of the things that we would say today, if we looked at that basic scenario, that Israel's neither serving the Egyptians and they're also not serving God, is we would say, now that is true freedom. This is actually close to the definition that modern people today have about freedom. This is how we tend to think about freedom. It, it, it infiltrates everything, every way that we go about life, is that freedom equals not having any lord or master. True freedom involves, right? It involves being liberated from... What? Any restrictions? Any restrictions from the outside? True freedom actually involves not belonging to someone else. True freedom involves belonging to myself. Yes, that is true freedom, we say. And the, uh, the biblical narrator here is basically showing us that that's impossible. That that is what I would like to you know, show my hand as well and say that's the freedom myth that we often live with today. Because Israel's here, they're not a slave to Egypt, they're not a slave to God, he's not their master yet, they're not serving him. And what's happening? They end up, it's obvious, they're still serving, they're still a slave to what? Circumstance. They're enslaved to fear. They're, they're unraveling, they're becoming delusional, they're, they're acting boxed in. They're not out and about and free, they're boxed in. By their own fears, by their own senses, by any little event that happens. They're slaves to circumstance. This ancient poet um, in the worship guide, I have these printed, uh, this ancient poet named Euripides, he put it very simply in the 5th century, he said, 5th century BC, he said, no one is truly free. They are a slave to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their will. Then another ancient poet put it this way. See if you recognize this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Anybody catch that? Bob Dylan, the ancient poet. Right? So, look, if, if a 5th century B.C. poet and Bob Dylan... And the Bible all come together around a subject. You know it's got to be true. And that you know it's true as well in your own life. Think about it. Is it possible really not to be enslaved, really not to have a master? Is that even possible? No. Because even if you unknowingly, unknowingly what happens, you end up making something your master. Something starts driving everything you do. 
And you, you don't even realize it often until you have what I'll call idle crash, where it starts to slip. What you've set up, doesn't, it's not quite there. It's not working out the way you thought. You start to see that these are false covenant gods who embrace you with the tenderness of a slave master's whip. In this story, if you, we didn't hit on this during the plagues, but if you, if you were noticing every time Moses went before Pharaoh, what was his request? Let my people go, right? Period? No, there was no period there. It continued. Let my people go so that they may serve the Lord. Our, the modern way of freedom is let my people go. The God of the Bible is inviting you to see it as the only way, really, is let my, pe- let my people go. Freedom is in being freed from your other enslavements to serve me because, because in God's embrace, what you find, you'll find in no other embrace. Anything else you set your life around, anything else that will master you will not give you forgiveness for your failures rather than a curse. God's embrace is the only thing that you can pursue that will give you, if you set your life around it, that will fill your emptiness rather than leaving you empty like an addict chasing after, you know, just one more hit of that false god of beauty or compliments or comfort or control or wealth. So the story gives us a little bit of a picture of our problem. It also gives us a picture of our deliverance. And you notice, it's really vivid. Moses shows us when he's speaking to the Israelites trying to comfort them. He says, I mean, he's, he believes. And he says, stand firm and you will, be deliver- you will see the deliverance of the Lord, uh, the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. I mean, he has this, it's going to happen, it's going to be done. And you see at the end of the story, what does it say? But kind of emphasizes it over and over. But it says, and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What happens is they go through, they pass through the waters and it's practically instantaneous. There's an instantaneous change. The enslavement is now behind them. They are now truly free. They are now in service of their God. The waters of judgment have swallowed up their old enslavement and it's done. Um, And today, we don't place a real high value on this kind of real deliverance. The the best we get, and I still think it's a very watered-down picture of deliverance, the best we might get is to look at at the issue of happiness. And we say, you know what what I really need to be delivered from is any degree of unhappiness. You know, I really need to be delivered from the restrictions being placed on my own pursuit of happiness. That in, in a very, I would say that's the, the majority of people that you and I know are wrapped up in that kind of deliverance. And so what, what ha- this is why we get to the, we, we see uh, Im- pictures of it like this. When someone's maybe considering whether or not they want to become a Christian. The kind of question, it's very common to ask this kind of question. If I'm going to become a Christian, what will I be allowed to do and to not do? Right, what will I, that's the kind of question that you might bring. 
if I'm going to become a Christian, what will I be allowed to do? It's, you know, it, it's not just someone who's not a Christian yet. You'll find this in the small groups you're a part of. You'll find this with Christians who've been Christian for 20, 30 years. You, you come to some issue in your life and you ask the same question. What does the Bible say? Let's flip through the whole thing. What are we allowed to do and not allowed to do on this one issue? That's, it's very common. And so you look and you go, okay, what is a Christian allowed to do with my money? What am I allowed? What about the issue of who do I sleep with and when? What about the issue of who do I forgive and how often and how readily do I need to be in a forgiving kind of mode with this person? So you flip through and you scan all the Bible and you try to figure out what's the answer. So one, that's how we bring our view of deliverance to the table. Basically what we're doing when we do this, and we need to see this, what you're doing when you go about the Christian faith this way is you're asking for the Ten Commandments before you've experienced the deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. You're asking for the Ten Commandments before you've been freed from Egypt. Every time, any time you prioritize and become obsessed with restrictions and what are the ones that I have and what are the ones I should pay attention to and what are the ones that I shouldn't pay attention to instead of and prior to encountering and receiving God's deliverance. Basically what I see it as is it's a recipe to some of the most self um, self-righteous kind of religious behavior that there is out there if you take this approach approach obsessed with restrictions before experiencing encountering knowing what on earth is it to be delivered by god through jesus and so the story thankfully gives us a great picture of deliverance and uh this noted scholar um, who i often read when it comes to old testament uh, books of the bible brevard childs this is his simple statement he says jesus ushers in the messianic age which the original exodus from Egypt only foreshadowed. That is a great quote. File that, that, that framework that that gives, really not just even for exodus, but for a lot of the Old Testament. Let me read it again. Jesus ushers in the messianic age which the original exodus from Egypt only foreshadowed. So what does Jesus say? He gives a little hint. See if you can catch it, a little hint, a little call back, um, a little shout out back to the original Exodus when he says, very truly I tell you in John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. You catch that? Has crossed over from death to life. It's like an instantaneous thing. And this is absolutely what a Christian believes. Is that when you, as he says, when you hear God's word, when you believe through Jesus, through the acts of Jesus on behalf of you to make you right with God, there is an instantaneous change. There is an instantaneous deliverance from what you need to be delivered from most that happens. Um, uh, you don't find this in most belief systems. You don't find this in most religions. Usually there's this initiation and there's training and maybe someday you'll get to some period of enlightenment or maybe when you die, you'll have sense of reaching there. Jesus says, you have crossed over from death to life. The Israelites, when they got through the Red Sea, they were delivered. And what does this mean? We see it again in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul says in in even more strong terms, I think, in really clear terms. He says in verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now. And this is a pretty strong statement for the Apostle Paul to make because if you think about who he was, if you know anything about his story, 
I'll just summarize it by saying he was like the, the new version of Pharaoh, of King Pharaoh. I mean, getting on the chariots and chasing down God's people, the Christians, amidst this new movement. It was kind of like, you know, the Jewish leaders got Jesus killed, and now the Paul, who wasn't yet the Apostle Paul, he was called Saul, um, he was one of these, these pharisaical leaders of the time. And he said, now I'm going to, you guys got Jesus. I'm going to get all of Jesus's people. And he's going around from town to town. He becomes a Christian. And can you imagine the sense of internal condemna- condemnation beating him down when he sits in a, in a group singing or praying and he sees the tears of those whose lives have been broken up because of his actions, because of deaths, because of imprisonments caused by him and his authority opposing the church. Can you imagine the sense of guilt and shame and condemnation overwhelming him? What does he say? There is now no condemnation. How does he say that? If he can say that, you can. You have that sense at all in your life if you're pursuing the Christian faith? There is now no condemnation. And how much condemnation do we live with? Usually a lot of internal. You know how it works. It it weighs you down. For whatever reason, we have voices of condemnation. Here's what Paul knew that maybe we don't and that a lot of people don't know is that deliverance in Jesus, salvation in Jesus is not rooted in primarily a change in your actions. It's rooted in an instantaneous change in your status. Not your actions, but your status. The actions follow, you know, the Ten Commandments come after the deliverance through the Red Sea. Primarily, you have, to, you have to get the order right and you have to get the priority right. Primarily a change in your status. Your deliverance is instantaneous. And what it means is that you've entered into this new relationship with God where over and over again he keeps reminding you who you are. He keeps telling you, it's already done. You are this already in my sight. You already are my child. Believe it. Please believe it. And if you get hints of it, you start to see that in God's arms, in God's embrace, in God's arms, you find what you were looking for in all other sets of arms in your life as you chased after approval or love or relationships. He tells you over and over again, as he told the Apostle Paul, as Jesus told his followers, that in God's verdict, you finally find the verdict that you were searching for in all other human verdicts that you were chasing after. And becoming a Christian is all about driving that verdict and driving that embrace of God deeper and deeper into your life, driving that new status down into your life. And so... um, Uh, The hymn writer Newton put it well when he said, I heard the accuser roar the ills that I have done. I know them well and a thousand more. Jehovah findeth none. He findeth none. He findeth none. I've been washed in the blood of his son. So, in closing, what does that do then? How do you approach things differently? You're a Christian. How do you approach something like money? How do you approach something like sex? How do you approach something like how do I forgive and who do I forgive and how much? How do you answer those questions? Well, it's very different. It looks very different. You come at it completely different. If you've, if you've experienced and encountered and focused first on this deliverance, please don't get it backwards. 
the result is a group of people who come to these kind of questions saying, okay, money. What treasure do I now have in my new status as God's child? All that is his is mine. He watches over me like a child who asks for something. He knows what I need. So anything I have is a gift from him. Why don't I act? Why don't I begin to act in this way that I trust him with this stuff? That I trust that he'll provide? That I make sure I'm not trusting in this and putting my security in this rather than in him alone? The question is, how do I best act out my new status in this particular area of my life? And that's where Christians, that's where you get creative. That's where no answer is the same. But usually, it's way different than the answer of what am I allowed to do? Sex. What am I allowed to do? Or how do I best embrace this new status as God's child? What does that mean for me? I have a love. I have an embrace. I have a connection with God that all other relationships and pursuit of relationships and sexual involvement in relationships only is a mere hint at. It's just a shadow of the love I have now in my new status with Christ. What does it mean to act like I know that? Even if I don't feel it, what does it mean to start to act like that's true? To start to live into that? Very different than asking the question, what am I allowed to do? Or forgiving. It almost seems like that question got asked of Jesus, if you know the story. How many times do I have to forgive, you know, so-and-so? You remember that story? And they say, up to seven times. And he says, seven times 70. In a sense, that's the difference between what am I allowed and how do I... If God has forgiven everything I've ever done and will do, God's approach is to forgive me as quick and as readily and to just have this posture of immediate embrace and return to the good relationship, to the reconciliation. Okay, that's how God is with me. How do I reflect that in my relationships with others? Wow, that's tough. But that's what it means to kind of lean into and live into this new status. May God give us the grace to be able to do that as a community and individuals. Let's pray. God of grace, even as we come to um, this time of offering and then your, to your table, may you keep um, driving into our hearts what we need so much help understanding. We need your Holy Spirit to understand how much you love us, how true it is that we are your children, beloved through the actions of Jesus on our behalf. Drive them into our hearts and our souls through any means possible, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.